Welcome to another episode of Fascinate Pod with me, Sam Brown. On today's episode, I'll be speaking to the director of the Action and Research Centre at the RSA. I first got in touch with him because I read a paper that he co-wrote with a couple of other people, Pathways to Universal Basic Income. This is a paper that we discuss a little bit in the podcast. From my perspective, this is at least a conversation that needs to happen on a relatively large scale in this country. We need to take a long, hard look at the situation that we're in and the prospects for people leaving school, our benefits system, our growing income inequality, and the amount of poverty and homelessness that we see around us. Frankly, though, it does fill me with a bit of hope that some people have, as their job, the task of looking into problems that ordinary people face and having the ability to come up with and test out solutions. And here's one of them, Anthony Painter. Firstly, thank you very much for coming on to the Fascinate podcast. Absolute pleasure. Could you tell me and the viewers, listeners, who maybe don't know what the RSA does, what goes on here, and maybe what your role is as well? Sure, very happy to. Um, the RSA, the Royal Society of Art, Manufacturers and Commerce, so given its full, long-winded uh, title, has been around for about 250 years. And it was set up by a, a group of sort of commercial and social activists, if you like, to find new ideas to solve the problems of the time um, and try and help society um, improve. Now, of course, at the end of the 18th century was uh, a period of time there was a lot of um, science, innovation, commercial invention. It was an exciting time, of course. It was the odd revolution or two in America and France. Mm. Um, and since that time, the, the, the RSA has tried to find good ideas for the betterment of, of society. And that's still what we do today. We give a platform to some of the best ideas in the world. You know, if you want to hear from Stephen Pinker or Dan Pink and a whole host of the speakers, we've got an events programme down there. We've got 29,000 fellows. Um, who have made a contribution to society and often are sort of civic and social activists themselves as well as entrepreneurs and public service leaders um, and we're also a sort of think tank and social change organisation and I, I lead that department um, so it's called the Action Research Centre so we do sort of research analysis we try and put out ideas in the form of policies and how systems can change and what we need to do to um, support communities and people as they go about their lives um, but we also think about how we put some of those ideas into practice as well and so we work with a variety of partners places people who are looking to um, improve the country and help to adapt to the very many um, and gargantuan challenges that we're facing so that's the RSA you know in effect. Yeah it does sound like such an exciting organisation to work in you must find it quite rewarding every day coming to work and trying to make a positive social change. Yeah, I mean, it has, its, it has its downsides, as any organisation does, but no, you're right. And it's a, it's a place where you get access to a lot of inspiring people, a lot of original thought, a lot of determination and persistence mm. um, and imagination. And, you know, that's a very rewarding place 
to be. So it's a, it's a wonderful institution to be a part of. There's many different ways of being a part of DRSA. You know, you can go on our website and see some of the talks or read blogs or download reports. You can come to the event series. You can join the fellowship. Um, you know, you can get um, make an application and get a nomination and so on. Um, so anyone that's part of this organisation effectively is saying, look, I want to be part of what we need to do to fix some stuff that is rising to the surface. So, yeah, that's I guess that is inspiring and uh, motivating. And one of these things that is rising to the surface at the moment is universal basic income. Now, what does universal basic income mean to you? Because it can be put into practice in many different ways. So how do you envisage it happening? So... There's a number of questions there in that in that in that package, and I'll I'll, I'll try and address each of them. And I mean, there's a technical definition of universal basic income, which is probably not a bad place to start. That in essence, it's uh, an unconditional payment that every citizen, adult and child, gets in order to support them in in life. So it's individualised, it's um, unconditional, and you receive it as of right. That's the technical definition of universal basic income. It has to meet some sort of subsistence level as well. You know, just a pound a week wouldn't count as universal basic sure. income. It's not much of an income. Um, but it has, to, it has to enable you to live some form of life, I think, that, is, that has some quality. So that's a technical definition. But it's what it does that's really important. And I think one of, one of those big challenges that I mentioned earlier on is, is economic insecurity in our society. And I think there is a growing sense um, that there is what Professor Guy Standing would call a precariat. Um, but that precariat is quite wide and it's people who, through not having access to enough security of income over long periods of time, find themselves in situations of undue stress. And that stress um, manifests itself in not feeling a sense of being stuck. Um, it has negative health effects. It has ne- negative effects on families, the ability to get on in life, um, the effects on communities and so on. That's so what basic income is designed to do, is to put a floor underneath people, to give them a springboard and a platform through which they can learn earn, set up a business, um, care for loved ones, be active in their local community. So it's basically saying, look, this is, this is, this is a bit of solidity underneath every, every citizen. And with that bit of solidity, they will be in a better position to live um, lives of, of flourishing and well-being and ambition and creativity. And that's what a basic income is designed to fix. And that's what it is um, and does. There's a couple of points there that I want to bring it back to. You've said it's a net, it's a support system so that people can can flourish. They have a little bit more freedom, I suppose. This kind of speaks to what a lot of the middle class and upper class would get maybe from their parents. So what is the reason that those people would also be able to be entitled to this lump sum or this uh, this amount of money yeah it's a, it's a really good question and what's interesting of course is people often ask the question would basic income work you know and then straight away you think about i'm sure we'll come on to this you look at basic income pilots and experiments and things that look like basic income that have been tried well of course we've had um centuries if not millennia of basic income experiments in terms of um, people that have enough family wealth um, in order to have a firm footing underneath them um, and, you know, they don't sort of walk away from making all contributions to society. They still set up businesses, they still work, and they, they still try and get an education and get on in life and raise a, a family, you know, because they've got 
that that degree of security, if you like. Um, and there are lots of different sources of stress, but it takes one source of stress out of people's uh, lives. Um, so we can be quite positive in some respects that we've got this sort of millennia-long um, pilot into what basic income might do in terms of people's motivations. Um, so you know, I think that's 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 one thing to answer. But the more political question you asked, um, which is which I, I think you know the, a good place to start on this. Everyone will receive it because you want it to be a badge of citizenship. It is part of being a member of British society or American society, French or Norwegian, wherever you may be. However, it has to be paid for. And uh, the model of basic income, which um, we uh, have been promoting and discussing at the RSA, is a very progressive model. Um, And you would look for those who earn more and maybe those who are more wealthy um, to contribute more to the pot through which a basic income is paid. So the net beneficiaries tend to be those who earn less and those who make a net loss because they're making a bigger contribution tend to be those who are of higher earnings. And we we put the, uh, a, a sort of, you know, an arbitrary line of 70,000 or more. We'd look for those um, people who are in that earnings range We pay a bit more into, into the income pot in order to support the basic income of all. So actually in terms of net winners and losers, the winners from basic income are concentrated at the bottom and in the middle and lower middle and the net losers tend to be concentrated at the top end so it's progressive and we think fair and just because of that. I can already hear quite a few of the higher earners saying why should I be paying for other people to be sat around and maybe disincentivized to work a little bit. Is that an, an issue that you anticipate? It's um, certainly, you know, there are claims that that's what basic income would would lead to. Um, but to go back to what I was saying earlier on about we can only look at those who have a degree of economic security and, and, and how they, they, they live their lives. And um, there isn't a sort of, you know, uh, a mass desertion from life to the, to the, to the sofa. Um, it's much more complex than that. They're just more able to pursue things that make more sense. And to them that meet meet their own their own needs, and there's a degree of I think you described it as freedom, and I think freedom is an important word in this in this context. But then I guess the, the second question is why should I, as a if I were a very high earner, why should I contribute more um, than others? You know what's in it for me? And I think we're in times you know where um, even the very highest earners are starting to realise there's something wrong with how our society is functioning. Uh, we have a very divided society. Um, it's easy to straight away lead to sort of behavioural, moralistic descriptions of why that is. So you remember George Osborne had this phrase of strivers versus skivers. Mm. So you kind of blame those who are down on their luck because there's some sort of behavioural defect. I I think that's incredibly pessimistic about humanity and, and, and humankind. Um, and I think there's a sort of thinking that gets you into a very divided world, um, a world of food banks, of on-street homelessness, um, of mental health disturbance, of family breakdown, of community breakdown. It also means that we deprive ourselves of the talents that would otherwise be developed if people had a bit of more of a solid base through which to develop their their talents. Um, And of course that starts to hit the things that are interests to the high earners. They still want to see their businesses flourish and their investments flourish and all those things. So, you know, to coin another 
recent phrase from a conservative politician in fact the same conservative politician i mentioned earlier on we are all in this together and the minute we stop to think or believe that we start to um, unpick those dependencies that we have on one another and we start to live in very divided non-flourishing sometimes very dangerous and scary communities so i'd say to those who would be asked more as to contribute more to the pot be careful what you wish for because you might end up existing in a sort of society that you're not proud of and doesn't enable you to carry on flourishing and thriving yourself and indeed creates political threats for you as well you know because this is politically unsustainable a very divided society in a democracy and even non-democracies has mechanisms through which to which to fight back against the system um, so make a decent contribution now give people a fair opportunity let's live in a just political economy um, and then we can reduce the risk that we all collectively face. I think that's a great argument. We do live in a very divided time, of late anyway. It's only growing as well, unfortunately. Um, are you aware of Andrew Yang and what he's doing in America? Yeah. yeah. So for people who don't know, Andrew Yang is a potential US presidential candidate and he's running on the promise that he will bring universal basic income to America and he's citing a lot of the same uh, messages that you're saying now. One of the things that, that really resonated with me was that he said, if you take care of people's basic needs, they will have more bandwidth. And what he means by bandwidth is more decision-making power. So they will be able to make better decisions and make cleverer decisions and make the right decisions. And that would be to do with everything in their lives, really, to do with their diets, their drinking habits their relationship choices, their spending habits as well. And they'd be more likely to choose a uh, delayed gratification over instant gratification. Now, if we lived in a society like that, it does just seem like we would all benefit, I suppose. It wouldn't just be the lower uh, economic class. It, it would spread and everybody would be able to profit and prosper. Yeah, and the argument Andrew Yang makes there, I think, is a very, not only a powerful one, um, and, and an innocent reaction to that might well be, well, that all sounds great. That all sounds marvellous. Isn't that nice? And, and isn't it awfully utopian? It's often the thing that gets thrown at UBI. It's all very utopian. Yeah. But the problem is, for those who might reflexively articulate that as a, as a response, is that Andrew Yang has um, scientific evidence behind him. And there was very, um, there's been some very powerful work done by a couple of psychologists whose names escapes me for the moment, um, but maybe the notes under the podcast we can put it in afterwards sure. around cognitive bandwidth. Um, and what they found actually is that um, stress, um, money induced stress, actually leads to you being able to have less access to your cognitive function. Your IQ actually lowers as a result of the sorts of stress, stresses that come from you not being able to meet your basic needs. And your field of cognitive vision narrows, um, and therefore you can only see the present rather than being able to look into um, the more distant uh, future. So he's absolutely right. But more, more than that, actually where basic income type 
um, interventions have been tried, and they've been tried in a number of places in uh, North America, Africa, and um, the Indian subcontinent. The outcomes have actually demonstrated that. Hospital admissions have been fewer, domestic violence has gone down, education levels have gone up, and the accusation that, that people walk away from the world of work hasn't come to pass. So I think he's articulating a very powerful line that to many will sound too good to be true, but he does have a science behind him. Can we get into some of those examples then? So you mentioned North America. An example in North America that I only discovered a couple of months ago was Alaska. Now, they've been paying their citizens um, an Alaskan... Permanent dividend fund. Permanent dividend fund, yeah. Now, this comes from oil money, essentially, but they've been doing that for nearly four decades. And what has been the outcome of, the, of the, essentially this universal basic income? Yeah, and the way the way it works is it, it's a variable amount that every Alaskan um, receives every every year individually. So just say if it's three thousand dollars, doesn't sound very much, but if you're a family of four, that's twelve thousand dollars that you get as your your share of the oil income um, that Alaska receives. Um, I think the first thing to say is Alaska is not. Um, sort of loony lefty country where anyway, Sarah Palin was governor of Alaska, right? You know, sure, yeah. <laughs> this is a, a politically interesting place. Um, but they inspirationally did this thing um, from the early 1980s uh, onwards. Um, and it's enormously politically popular, actually. And something that was leading to um, in, inducing sort of uh, mass laziness um, or any of the sort of negative Im- or, or the collapse of community um, and all those negative impacts that the critics of basic income can claim would not sustain for um, you know nearly 40 years as you say and would not have approval ratings of 80% plus you know the, 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 the permanent fund in Alaska is as popular as the NHS is in the UK just to give some point of um, comparison um, um, some very recent um, research that has been done on the employment and economic impacts of um, basic income in Alaska. And, and generally, by the way, since the fund was introduced, um, Alaska was one of the most unequal states in, in, in the US in the early 1980s. Um, it's now one of the most equal. In terms of? Income inequality. Okay. Yeah. And poverty has reduced in, in Alaska more than, than most other US states. There are some, such as Massachusetts, that have um, made other types of mechanisms to fight against poverty as well, but they're, they're, they're one of the highest um, improving states. Um, and on the employment front, there wasn't a step away. What, what they've generally found is that people use the, um, the permanent dividend to do things like reduce debt, which kind of improves their asset base and that creates a greater degree of security for them or meet those significant one-off payments like, like you know, a down payment for a trailer or what, what, whatever, whatever it may be. And in terms of employment, there hasn't been a noticeable impact on um, employment. What's happened, there's been a shift as there has everywhere from sort of export industries, i.e. manufacturing in many cases, to more service-based industries. But the wages have, have, have gone up in many, in many respects because basically people can afford to stay away from the labour market a little longer than they would otherwise be able to because they've got this, this bit of a sort of economic support. So that has a slight upward pressure on wages. 
Now, there are some you know, very, very sort of um, right-wing economists who would argue that any sort of upward pressure on, on wages means inflation and that will destroy jobs and so on. That hasn't been the experience in Alaska. So there's a good story to tell in Alaska on, on, on wages and there's a good story to tell on, on equality and poverty. There's good stories to tell on political support for the permanent um, dividend fund. I think in England and in many places around the world, we're seeing this wave of automation coming in. That has reduced the amount of people in work. So, for example, if you look at uh, a supermarket, say Sainsbury's, they used to have 40 cashiers and currently they have 10 cashiers and a couple operating those self-service checkouts. Now, it might not seem like much of a big deal, but if that happens across the country and in, in more than just the supermarket industry, then that's a flood of people in the job market looking for the same jobs, I suppose. So that makes it easier for employers to employ people at a cheaper cost. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the reasons behind a lot of the uh, new animosity that that we are seeing of late. And I'm just wondering if that is a big goal of universal basic income, to overcome the rising animosity and unrest that we're seeing in, well, especially in the UK and America. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, 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 the way the way that we have, I mean, we've done a lot of analysis on labour markets and technology, and we have a future work centre here um, at the at the RSA. And what seems to be happening is that work is displaced in some arenas. And you mentioned Sainsbury's, but you know, high value manufacturing is quite clear where output has kind of been broadly constant, but employment has gone down. But what's interesting, of course, the employment rate has gone up rather than down. So what on earth is going on here? And actually what's happening is, of course, you're getting a changing of the labour market. You get more and more people at lower levels of, of pay. So it might be in, in distribution or care work or so on. Um, so overall, the level of employment is not only remaining steady, it's, it's, it's increasing. But you're getting a huge change that sits underneath that. And when you get change, some people win and some people lose. And those people who are losers from change obviously feel, have a sense of uh, loss. And potentially a sense of disgruntlement and that can have a number of different impacts it has an impact on them and their family of course because it impacts their well-being but can create a sense of injustice and unfairness in the system right now when you look at what happened for example with brexit you look at the areas that were kind of if you like quite working class in their in characteristic but had been through a phase of of deindustrialization in the 1990s right so factories have moved on mines are closed so on and so forth a lot of people have gone on to sick pay um, and has spent a lot of time out of work you know there was a sense of worklessness in particular communities and this is concentrated in in, in particular um, places uh, and those who had work had access to lower wage work and more volatile and, and flexible i.e insecure work than they previously had had the case in, in unionized pretty well-paid jobs um in say the rover factory in the west midlands which is where, where i'm um, uh, originally from um so you can see that backlash happens. Now, the question is, how do you support people in that, in that process? Uh, now, is a basic income the response that you need to that sort of situation? Well, not alone is the answer. And no one is saying that by giving a basic income is going to solve all the issues. You could still end up with a huge amount of worklessness. But what you might 
be able to do if you put other things alongside it. You have a decent industrial strategy. You invest in, in skills and support for people who are facing unemployment, as well as giving them a bit of security from a basic income. And you have a support-based model. You might have a better chance of getting them back into some meaningful work over time. Whereas what we have at the moment, instead of a support-based model, we have a sanctions-based model. So you're thrown out of work, factory closes, thrown out of work, distribution centre reduces its workforce and it is the modern industry, if you like, and you'll see them on the sort of M1, M6 corridor, these huge sort of um, warehouses. Um, so they might lay off staff periodically. So at that moment, you then, okay, you need to find work um, and you may or may not find it immediately. You may go to your local job centre plus, but instead of support, what you get is straight away a very prescribed thing. You've got to do this, this and this and this. You've got to get back into work straight away. You may not think it's the right work to do, but unless you meet these conditions, then we're going to potentially sanction you. We might sanction you. And actually, all, you're, you've got to basically march to our tune. We might be very nice about it. You know, This might all seem like a wonderful chat and we sign a contract, whatever. But underlying it, the state is basically saying that we are going to mandate for you to behave in these, in these ways. That's very humiliating in many respects. So what you're starting to get is often people either, they try and get on onto sickness benefits where there might be fewer uh, conditions or sometimes they walk away from the system altogether. A lot of people you're starting to see on the streets are people that just walked away from the system altogether. They have low levels of trust in the system and they feel that it's better trying to make it on their own. But what sort of situation are they in suddenly? Well, they're in a very desperate situation. So the difference with basic income is it, it will help develop trust um, in the the to- local services that can give people the supports they need in order to adapt to change, as well as giving them a bit more economic security in, in the process. So it's not a magic solution to the types of situations you're describing. It's a helping hand, and we think that's important. I was having a chat with my with a good friend of mine recently about that, and I was explaining to him that it's not just the concept that the, the welfare system that we currently have is broken or being able to be cheated, which it, it may well be in some cases, it's more the fact that people are, like you've pointed out, slipping through the gaps and just not being cared for. People who really need that care. Absolutely. And, and it, it's one of the biggest ironies of, of the current system. We have, we have a system that is called you know, a means-tested system. It's targeted, right? which makes it sound like it's going to hit the target. right? If you have need, then you're going to get the support you need. You know, As your income goes down or you lose your job, in it comes. Here comes the cavalry and, and will support you, which sounds great. But it's exactly as you point out. The reality is, and because of the complexity of the system, because the system can be incredibly authoritarian, I don't use that word lightly, but I think it can be authoritarian, i.e. it tries to control people's lives. And so it generates this lack of trust. It creates these gaps. right? And it tries to constantly sort of calibrate itself to whatever is going on in your life week to week. Now, it's done on a household basis, right? So if you've got two earners, both of who are on zeros hours contracts, in and out of work, different types of work experience and so on, the bureaucratic system is trying to adapt to that. Well, of course it can't. It's much simpler to give people um, a basic level of support on which they can they can build their lives. And actually, the best sort of support they can offer is one they can navigate themselves. The best person of what's the best arbiter of what's best for me is probably me in most likelihoods. I, I, I would like to think anyway. Yeah, I, I, I thought yeah. most people will, will be in a similar situation. And what? I need in certain situations is just a bit of support enabled to pursue the best outcome for me. Now, 
Does that mean that there are people who cheat the system? Of course there are. You know, <laughs> there are. There, cheating is part of human nature, and that will always be the case. And no system is thoroughly immune to that. There's a lot less fraud under basic income, by the way, because everyone gets it. There's no need to defraud anything. Yeah. So you know, in, in in a sense, there's no incentive to act in a in a fraudulent uh, way. Um, but inevitably, you 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 get that. But the question is. Do you want to base a system on what is in the interests of the many and the majority, or do you want to eradicate the behaviour of the small minority that you don't think or don't, are not doing the right thing? And I think actually a system that is based on supporting the majority is where we should focus, rather than actually create ever more intricate interventionist systems to try and eradicate the last, last bit of negative behaviour, which offends us. And, and let's be honest, look, your, your friend, when they're talking about people's system, it offends us if people are cheating the system. And it offends me, and I'm sure it offends, it offends you. I can sometimes see why they might be tempted to do it, because they're in a pretty, pretty desperate situation. But, but nonetheless, it's not behaviour that you'd ever, you'd ever condone. Um, but then to actually gear the whole system around... And that small number is then going to create misery for, for many. And I just don't think that's morally justifiable at the end of the day. On the one hand, you talk about the system of welfare that we've got at the moment not fitting what the needs of the country are. The point that I'm trying to get at is that if we give money to everybody, the higher income and the lower income, there is a portion of me that says... If you give it to the person earning 60 grand or 100 grand, they might just put it in their investment portfolio and be an extra few thousand pounds better off. But if you're giving it to the person who genuinely needs it to get back up on their feet or avoid living on the streets, they're essentially at square one with zero amount of money being looked after by the state, which is great. But if the other person earning 60, 100 grand has an extra few thousand pounds in the bank, is that divide not just growing i i think it, it depends on how you structure it but by the way it's important to say that the person earning sixty thousand pounds at the moment does get a lot of support from the state uh, in the, under the current system it's just that a lot of it's hidden yeah, sorry in what way do you mean so two or three ways example one is that they get access to the full personal allowance and national insurance allowances which if you were to turn those allowances into cash would be about three thousand pounds a year so already they're getting a basic income of, of, of £3,000. So you don't pay tax on the first £12,000 of earnings or first few thousand pounds of um, earnings from national insurance, right? So almost the core of what the new basic income system would be what exists there already. Now, you only get the full benefit of that if you're earning over £12,000. If you earn under £12,000, you don't get the full personal allowance. So ironically, you get less now. If you're earning, say, £8,000, you're on to do some part-time work or whatever, or you're a second earner, you don't get the full benefit of the, of the personal allowance that someone on £60,000 gets the full, the full benefit of. Um, the NHS provides care um, for us all. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting that I, I often have conversations with, um, with people, sometimes on the sort of centre-left, the social democratic left, who are passionate about defending the NHS, rightly so. Um, and you know, the NHS is a very important institution for us all. And I'll say some, hold on, but that's universal coverage and care. And if you're earning £100,000, you get access to the same care theoretically, although there is inequalities in the health system as well, but put that to one side for a moment. But if you're earning £100,000, you get access to the same care as if you're earning £5,000. 
right? Now, the person who's earning £100,000 actually is, is more than capable of paying for health insurance to cover their own needs. They don't need state support. You know, that's the system they have in America where, you know, if you're earning $100,000, you pay for gold-plated um, healthcare insurance and you get much better healthcare than almost anybody on the NHS could get because you have access to the very top doctors and, and so on. Well, we don't have that. We have a universal system and we're comfortable with that. And the way that that operates, of course, is that you have a broadly progressive taxation system. So um, someone earning £100,000 will be um, started to pay sort of 46% um, tax at that point. And, and that's how you, how you fund it. So you build, bring the fairness into the system on the tax side and then you give generosity because universal ways of providing things, whether it's health services, education or giving cash, is a very efficient way of ensuring that people have a, a baseline level of support. And then you fund it progressively through the tax system. So the, the key thing um, for your listeners to think about when they think about universal basic income is it isn't just a replacement for the welfare state. It would replace large parts of the welfare state, not all of it, but large parts of the welfare state. Um, but it also would replace the tax system as well. So it brings the two things together um, in one. And so you've got to think about this, OK, overall, what does this mean in terms of who pays what at which level? And you just need to develop a system that ensures that there is that distributional fairness, as the philosophers might might call it. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. We've skirted around the funding and the costs a little bit, but firstly, how would it be funded? That is a, a major concern of a lot of people. Uh, I think a lot of people would worry that you might have to draw funds away from things like the NHS or education? I think you could have a perfectly serviceable basic income model that would make a substantive difference for about 1% of, of GDP, which is probably about £20 billion, which sounds like an enormous amount of money. Until you realise, actually... The shift that we made in tax over the last 10 years to reducing corporation tax and increasing the personal allowance that we mentioned before and so on um, have been in excess of £20 billion. And that was in a period of of so-called austerity. When the tax credit system was expanded from the sort of mid-1990s onwards, accelerating under the last Labour government, that was um, an additional resource of £20 billion over, over 10 years. How much did taxes go up in that time? Well, they didn't interestingly because at that time it was a period of growth right so what they did is they took the so-called proceeds of growth which increases your tax take and they recycled it into supporting families who who were in poverty which at the time was the right right approach and for the reasons we've discussed i think the approach has come to the end of its of its lifespan and we need a different approach now although what they were doing at the time i think was absolutely um justified so there's lots of different ways in which you could you could meet the cost the annual cost of that you could increase taxes for highest earners you could look at wealth taxes. You could look at some additional corporation tax. And I said that firms by 2020 will have had a, a reduction in the total tax bill of about £20 billion. Well, I'd be more than happy to take half of that back and put it into a basic income, to be perfectly honest, because I think that's probably a better use um, of our collective funds. So there are a whole series of ways of, of, of paying for it. Um, you can even go beyond that and have an even more generous basic income model for 30 billion. And you do it over time. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't like sort of switch the lights off on the current system and then switch on the lights on the new system the day afterwards. So you have this enormous change. Welfare and tax changes take time. You know, the new Labour changes took 10 years. And you know, arguably, the Conservative government has continued some of those reforms. So we're looking at a 20 year change.
change. I think in a case of basic income, you'd look to put uh, a basic level in place in about five or six years, which would probably cost you about 10 or 15 billion pounds. Um, and then over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, you'd, you'd work to um, work up to a full basic income. You'd pursue it in a series of ways. I recently read the paper that you wrote, I think last year or possibly the year before, Pathways to Universal Basic Income, in that you propose an idea of universal basic income that isn't quite what I was expecting when I started reading it. I think you call it the Universal Basic Opportunity Fund, which, by the way, I think is a great name. It's (laughs) it's a really positive. I think who who can't get behind that? Um, You see the trip we pulled with that one. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe do you want to explain the difference between what you proposed there and what we've previously talked about? Yeah. We have been very interested in something called sovereign wealth funds. We're already talking about the Alaska Permanent Fund. That is a sovereign wealth fund. I think Norway has a similar... Exactly, exactly. And funded out of oil revenues um, equally. So we had a look at those and we thought, is there a sovereign wealth fund route to funding basic income? And we came across some work that had been done by, funny enough, a city investment fund um, called M&G. Um, and you don't necessarily expect the most radical ideas to come out of city investment funds. Um, but what they basically proposed is um, the state should borrow £200 billion. Pounds. It's an enormous amount, right? right? Benefiting from low interest rates, right? So the state can borrow in the form of bonds, and current interest rates are 0. 0.5, 0. 0.75. Off my head, I can't, I can't remember. I guess it depends on when this programme is going out and when people listen to it, what the current rate is anyway. And if we're in sort of post-no-deal Brexit, who knows? They could be zero or they could be 10%. Or they could be negative, who knows? Indeed, indeed. And, and actually, one of, the, one of the things you could do, actually, is, is essentially um, do a quantitative easing job and give that to people in the form of basic income rather than giving it to the banks. But anyway, let, let's just put that to one side. Um, so we're interested in the sovereign wealth funds um, and and this, this idea is you'd borrow uh, money for an endowment, which you'd put in an invest, a state investment fund. Right? And you'd use this money to invest in infrastructure of different types, green energy, transport, data networks, maybe even housing, capital investment that the state does. And we thought, well, that's a very interesting idea. But what if we did it slightly differently? Right? And what if we looked at something which was a self-sustaining model that you could do all those investments and start to pay a basic income and replenish the fund over time? So our idea, and, this, and we call it Pathways to Basic Income, because this is one way in which you could reach towards a more generous basic income. So our idea basically was that you would raise that endowment that was suggested by M&G of about 200 billion for memory. I'm sorry, I'm just sort of dragging the figures off the top of my head, but, but you can double check them against the, the, the report that we wrote. Um, and you give an endowment to um, the Universal Basic Opportunity Fund. And this fund would then invest that endowment in a mixture of the types of infrastructure we're just talking about. We need more housing, so invest in social housing. Of course, that generates a a rental return as people move in and maybe supported by housing benefit or whatever it might be. Um, And that could help you pay back the interest on the £200 billion that you've you've borrowed. And maybe with a bit on top as well, which you could put into the fund as a a return. Uh, You might invest in energy infrastructure. And of course, as people start paying for that energy, that generates a return as well. And you get the green infrastructure in the process. Um, You might invest in 
communications network, 5G broadband for argument's sake, and as that generates a return, that goes back as a return into a fund. You'd invest some of it in global equities as the Norwegian fund does, and indeed the Alaskan fund does as well. And on average, um, after um, sort of management fees and so on and inflation, the Norwegian fund has generated on like 5% a year over time from investment in global equities and so on. So all this return goes in, and what you would do is you would then say to everyone, in the UK, and we said it caused some controversy, but they've just created enormous debate over over the course of a weekend on, on the BBC and elsewhere. We said we'd make a what in effect was a basic income payment available to everyone under the age of 45. You can see why it got me into trouble. Yeah. And in order for them and their families to take two years of basic income in every 10 years. So £5,000 per family member, twice or for up to two years in any 10-year um, period. And all you'd have to do is to say what you intend to do with that money, right? So it wouldn't be a condition, but you'd just be asked to express in a way that could be identified what you're going to do. Are you going to put it into changing careers, setting up a business, having some time to care for the family if you had young kids um, or so on? What's the idea behind that, behind t- asking people to tell you what it's for? So there was a positive affirmation of confirmation. It's, it's basically a, a contribution commitment, if you like. So you make a public commitment to do something. You're not going to be held to it. You know, it's not, it's not the same thing as going into Job Centre Plus and you say, I'm going to apply for 47 jobs in the next two days and I'm going to attend this you know, CV writing session and so on. If you don't, it's taken back. It's more to say that this is for something, right? So, and, and, our, and our notion of basic income is it is for something. It's not just to sort of give people money and we won't even have the conversation around what we're expecting. Going back to the point around free riding and so on, we think it is something that we invest in people in order then for them to improve their lives. It's for them to determine what, what that, those things are. But we think making public commitment is a good way of people just thinking through and expressing what they might use the money, money for. So it's a very light touch device. You know, just say your family forward, you receive £20,000 in two years in 2010 and you'd use it to develop your career, business, care for each other, whatever, whatever it may be. So you're getting the returns from all those investments, but at the same time you're putting more juice in the pot. You've had this initial endowment that you've borrowed from the bond markets, and we did a we had a quick look at how easy it was for the state to borrow in the bond markets. And every issue of bonds for like the last four or five years has been oversubscribed. So there's lots of demand that's ready to be tap in, tapped into of people wanting to invest in government bonds. But then over time, what you do is you replenish the fund with a mixture of wealth taxes. And there were some calculations around taxing you know, net wealth above um, £750,000 a year, which is a very high level of net wealth. Um, transfers and, data, and taxes on data transfers to global platforms. Now, this is a really innovative idea. And the way this works is um, we would calculate how much of, your, of the nation's data was going to, say, Facebook. Now, Facebook uses your data in order to attract advertising. That generates its revenue and enormous profit. Now, we can't tax that profit because the profits are being earned offshore in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. But what we're saying is you are basically transferring assets from the UK, which is people's data, which you're earning a return on, that we don't, don't collectively then get a return on, although we get free access to the Facebook service individually, but we think there's more value in it than that. So we would calculate um, how much data was being transferred to Google on an annual basis, and we would levy a charge on that, which would go into the Opportunity Fund. That's a great idea. I'm going to look a bit more into that yeah. because I've been thinking for a while that there needs to be some way of 
being able to ta- you, you hear quite often especially in news stories that Google got away with not paying any tax this year in the UK or that sort of thing and I think they was it Facebook that gave Ireland a is it 60 billion pound payout not so long ago that song I've never heard that proposed before as a as a way of being able to get money from these really large corporations. I wonder if they can find a way around that. Maybe. We put it out, we, I mean, I have to say, we looked into the best, the best that we could, but it's certainly an idea to be worked through um, further. It's certainly notionally interesting, I think. We can't see any immediate sort of legal barriers nece- necessarily. And in fact, Philip Hammond in the last budget has proposed something quite similar in, in some respects, actually, a levy on, 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 on platforms um, prior to the international tax situation being being, being sorted out. Now, it might not be a huge amount in the early years, but of course the volume of data that we're going to be transferring, and, and I'm not trying to pick on Facebook and all, and all the rest of it, who knows what the, the AI platforms of the future may be, and the volume of data is just going to continue to explode. So over time that could become very valuable, and of course the supernormal profits they're able to acquire because they own the whole market and it's a global thing is significant. So some of that we feel should be returned to this sort of thing. And then the third element if you like is while you're receiving the opportunity dividend you wouldn't also be able to receive universal credit Um, so any savings on that front we would put back into the system as well so over time you would meet the the debt servicing needs of the state you would meet increased sort of capital and infrastructure investment considerably you would generate a return um, there's a whole diagram in that report that that, that, that shows this and um, with which people could start to take at least two years of basic income. And in the second 10 years, you might say three years. The third 10 years, you might say five years and so on. So that's the basic the basic idea. Um, and that we think there's something in it that's worth, worth exploring, a very different way of thinking about the system. It does seem like a plausible stepping stone from our current benefits state on the way to universal basic income. I can see why you called it pathways there. And I can see that most people taking that £5,000 or £10,000 over the two years would be able to do something very positive with it, whether it be someone retraining or somebody who would otherwise be going homeless and needs a little bit of money to pay for their rent for an extra couple of months while they kept themselves above water, really. It seems like um, a very positive movement. Is there any traction in government or are there any MPs that are currently backing this sort of idea? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. that The government's not interested in basic income currently because they've sunk a lot of political capital into universal credit and it's not fully rolled out yet, nowhere near, and won't be for another you know, five, six years or so. So they're kind of just still trying to implement the last big change, if you like, which which we think was a disastrous turn. And the problems that we're seeing um, in terms of um, poverty, insecurity, rent arrears, debt, food banks and all the rest of it can be can be linked to that and other things that have been that, uh, other things that have been done. The Labour Party is interested in basic income and there is, I think, a, 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 an open exploration around whether it might be worth, for example, having a basic income pilot two or three in the UK should there be uh, a Labour government. Am I right in thinking there's one plan for Scotland? So at the moment, um, the Scottish government have put aside some money to explore the feasibility of running a basic income pilot in Scotland. So there's four places that are looking at this in in, in some depth, Fife, um, Edinburgh, North Ayrshire and Glasgow. 
And we've been doing some work in Scotland to help sort of work through what some of the elements of that might look like. So I think the SNP are looking um, ever more closely at the possibility of doing a basic income pilot in, in Scotland. Uh, and I think that's quite promising, actually. The Green Party in the UK is also um, in favour as well. Labour in Wales has started making some warmer noises towards exploring basic income. So I think that the political um, the political spectrum has started to open out a bit. Lib Dems aren't in the conversation. They had a conference debate that I think was just filled with extraordinary uh, amounts of misinformation and misunderstanding. It was a very low-quality debate, and I'm going to be deliberately hard on them because they should have done better, quite frankly. And they decided not to support it as a conference, which is a pity because actually Lib Dems 20, 25 years ago were one of the driving forces behind um, what was then called a citizen's um, income. So that's, that's a pity. And then the Conservative Party really have their head in trying to sort out the absolute catastrophic mess that is universal credit mm, yeah everyone that i speak to about universal credit has a story they know somebody who's had to wait many many months when they need the support that they're just not getting it does seem from sort of anecdotal reports that something's definitely wrong is that just a transition period do you think and it will be in, like you say when it's fully rolled out in a few years time it will be much better it, it will be better inevitably because they will learn and adapt and even the Sun is running a campaign saying, you know, fix universal universal credit. So it, it will definitely get better. Um, and some of the more draconian technicalities of it will be removed. Some of the more impoverishing technicalities will be alleviated. So, of course. Um, however, fundamentally, the system is based on really problematic principles and it's the notion that the state machine can adapt and adapt to people in a in a, a very complex way that it can change their behaviors um, and almost make decisions on their behalf so whatever however they change it there will still be these core principles that will create mistrust and hardship um, and are very difficult from the perspective of those who want to receive universal credit to understand how it can how they can access it and how it can, how it can help support them do we know what position the international monetary fund or other large organizations like that have on universal basic income there's been increasing amounts of work done at an international level around basic income the un they have a special rapporteur on extreme poverty and he issued a report uh, last year basically saying that if we care about inequality and poverty, nations should be looking very um, closely at universal basic income. So there's very warm noises there. And um, in fact, India, a number of states in India are looking very closely at it. The World Bank has done some work on it, which is a bit more objective, but quite positive as well. And actually thinks that universal basic income could help improve wages for the same reasons we were talking about in Alaska. And people get more bargaining power, effectively, if they have a universal basic income. The IMF has looked at it, but kind of has looked at it um, in the sense of 
Um, there, you know, if you do a re- revenue neutral model, i.e., you'd have the same cost for a current system with with a basic income system, it wouldn't. It may have some detrimental impacts compared with a current system. But as you know, I think I've been quite open in this conversation, there are no proponents of basic income that are proposing a revenue neutral, cost neutral model. Right? Everyone accepts that if we're going to get the full benefits of basic income, we're going to have to spend more on the system. We just need to make the case that the benefits that we get are are, are great enough to justify additional um, additional expenditure. And the the World Health Organization, I believe, is looking at it at the moment as well for a simple reason. In a lot of the pilots that there have been, quite significant health outcomes have been found. And so I'd expect the World Health Organization to report on it at some point in in the near nearish future. It's interesting what you said about if we value people's welfare. I think that that is maybe a shift that we need to take as a collective, as a as a country, or you know, as the world really, to not base success of a country on GDP or success of a company on the profit margins or success of a person on their personal wealth. Money just does not seem to be a very good indicator of somebody's happiness or someone's welfare, really. So once we start measuring things by uh, on a countrywide scale, the mental health of a of a country, or the education of a country, or the percentage of money that a person in that country has to spend on just their living costs. If we change what we measure, maybe we'll be able to improve those more important things. I think that's a really powerful point, and it's why I think you know, measures such as poverty and inequality are really important, but they do have limitations as well. Right. You can be technically in in a situation of less or more poverty, but what's just as important is what is your experience of poverty? You know, do you have the support and security and agency that could help you improve your life, or are you just stuck there? You know, in precariousness with no chance of of manoeuvring. So I think in all these discussions, we've got to be slightly careful about leaning too much on on measures, and they, and they're often their metrics, poverty and inequality alone, and have a rounded picture. I think about these questions from the perspective of human beings and people, and what their experience of life and poverty and work. And community and democracy and society might how it might be different given a different set of circumstances. For example, receipt of a universal basic income. Then, what impact might that have on on their lives? So, for example, the basic income trials that were done um, in India, they started discovering all sorts of unexpected outcomes. Um, of course, they reduced debt. They expected that. Um, but women started going out to work, and they started going out work to work by setting up cooperatives to do shared tasks together because they have financial independence and basic income does give you some financial independence and if you don't if you're not in a situation of financial independence then you are you are locked away from pursuing certain opportunities well they found suddenly that the women were an active community voice in the civic sphere in a democratic sphere and they were setting up cooperative enterprises and they were working so they were able not only to fulfill their 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 caring responsibilities they're able to open out new pathways themselves now a poverty measure in and of itself you know is that helpful in understanding all those range of potential benefits well up to a point yes but you've also got to think about how what's the actual difference that certain interventions make on people's lives not just how do they move this or that needle on this or that metric 
there's so much more, isn't it, that someone can gain that can't necessarily be measured. I suppose you, maybe you could measure this, the, the impact on the NHS, the strain on the NHS that we might see in, uh, in the UK might be significantly reduced with the reduced mental health issues if that was a result of uh, universal basic income. So um, in two trials they did in North America, one in Manitoba in Canada and there was a second what's called this sort of accidental basic income trial in North Carolina so the first one was one that was set up by Canadian government in the 1970s um, under Justin Trudeau's father interestingly current Prime Minister's father and that found exactly what you described that there was a reduction in in hospital visits and a reduction in uh, mental health referrals in that whole community that had received basic income um, so, yes, um, and in fact, a while back I wrote an op-ed in the British Medical Journal which looked at some of the evidence around this, and again, maybe we can put it in the, in, in the links that, that accompany the podcast. Um, then the North Carolina one, and was, this is a weird example, there was a casino, a mega casino that was built on an Indian reserve, and so they gave the Indian community a pot of money that was then distributed as a basic income to the, the Cherokee tribe, and they had a whole series of sort of investigations there uh, around hospital admissions, mental health and so on. And they showed that there was a reduction in admissions to hospital because of um, violence and domestic violence. And they showed improvements in mental health and improvements in educational attainment amongst, amongst um, young Indian children in households that received this basic, basic income. So, yeah, it has all these positive... And, and actually, it goes back to the, the fundamental point at the beginning, which is about this foundation gives you a firmer footing. So you're less likely to fall. And if you're less likely to fall, you're less likely to be involved in violence, mental health, drugs addiction so on and so forth yeah there's just so much more than just simply valuing money isn't there that's such a powerful point so um have you read life 3.0 by max tegmark i have yes brilliant it's uh, such a great book i recommend it for anyone in that he posits a wide variety a huge spectrum of what may happen with the uh, introduction of more advanced ai one of the scenarios that he suggests we could cultivate there's a scenario really that we are looked after by artificial intelligence in a much higher capacity than many of us might think that our educational needs could be largely catered for by artificial intelligence our travel needs our healthcare system everything like that and also what makes us happy so they could aid us on with going on holiday or spending time with friends or uh, feeling a sense of community or compassion with other other people now do you see any of this as very utopian or could it be realistic given that like we talked about earlier amazon and google and ibm are the major owners of what we currently know as the most advanced artificial intelligence and how do you see universal basic income really fitting into that framework yeah i think in time over what time frame and and yeah, obviously max tegmark is careful in terms of the time frames he expresses there's quite a wide um, sort of window on some, some of these things but I think it's it's imaginable um, I mean it fills me with a degree of discomfort I, I, I feel that it's the world in which you're describing is one in which some human agency and freedom has been surrendered mm-hmm. um, and we've contracted out almost some thinking 
and that isn't designed to to enable us to make better free choices it's designed to make us make more optimal choices as defined by an artificial intelligence uh, you know algorithmic structure or so on and of course look there's relentless feedback loops in this that you that you can find yourself you know suggested to in terms of behaviors products services you might want to access and by doing that you're feeding information into the machine it's a reflexive system right and it feeds back to you again and again and again and i think actually basic income in that sort of um sort of world um where um we have become exceptionally um passive in many in many ways even though we may look incredibly active and bright and we'll have the you know, the social media evidence to show how how happy and fulfilled we are and all the rest of it actually you know we're we're visually we've got a sort of appearance of 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 activity but we're in a state of passivity i think basic income in that environment is a, is 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 problematic if it and this is this is where a degree of scepticism comes in. The context of basic income is so important. It's, if it is a device that leads us down a pathway of greater passivity, that's when I get off the, the vehicle. But the issue is not basic income itself. The issue is the environment in which it's which is connected to. Which is actually why you get support for basic income across the philosophical and political spectrum, and you get opposition to it across the philosophical and political spectrum um, as well. The vision of basic income that I would have is one that is freedom-loving and it is supported to ensure that people are able to make decisions. Now, the, the whole conversation we've had about the welfare state and universal credit is kind of in the foothills of artificial intelligence. It's clunky and it's human and it's arbitrary. But I, if you came along to me and said, well, look, we can do this, this sort of you know, post-singularity artificial intelligence version of it and we can have this perfectly adapted system um, that could enable better decision-making and better access to work and the rest, I'd say I don't think that's right. And it will sometimes mean that people are miserable. They feel a sense of difficulty, that they feel a sense of having to try new things and pursue different avenues, and it may be a tough environment from time but I think for me that's part of what being human is and so the the vision of basic income that I would subscribe to is one that is aligned to what I see as 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 free humanity not one that is designed to put us in a as, as I think it was Yuval Noah Harari described it as a golden cage and I can understand why some people would fear that golden cage but the questions are bigger than basic income alone, and we have to have that bigger conversation and understand what basic income can do in the right setting and not spell it out as being part of a dystopian universe, which of course it could be, but any of these institutions could be part of a dystopian universe. Maybe I skipped a few steps there on the way to uh, artificial intelligence ruling and controlling our day-to-day lives. There are a few stages where the percentage of people that are in employment it might be reduced to 40%, 30% of the population. There will only be jobs for that amount of people because of the advancement in artificial intelligence and automation, essentially. What do you see people doing with their time in, in that sort of scenario? Is there, a, is there something in place when people don't have the jobs and the, the the interaction with other people that come along with jobs and the sense of purpose that come along with jobs? I think 
the that world that you're you're describing, which is a world, by the way, and, and there have been some sort of forecasts that we can start to see something akin to that world in you know the twenty twenty five year time frame. I don't think that's right. I think we're talking about a much longer period of time. And and the the questions you're asking me is are kind of the questions that I think my great 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 grandchildren are going to have to wrestle with potentially um, um probably you and i are in the fortunate position of not having to wrestle with these questions in a direct sense anyway you know in a, in a sort of thought experiment sense y- yes for sure um i see that that world basic income um becomes absolutely essential yeah th- that that world wasn't that there would not be a civilization would have broken down if basic income or something akin to it didn't exist in that world. Now, I don't. That's not an argument I make in favour of universal basic income because, as I say, it, it's a sort of Star Trek universe as far as far as I'm concerned. And people might might seem as very narrow-minded in 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 that in that way. Um, but I I don't see how such a society can function without some sort of distributive mechanism that gives people a way of thriving and surviving. However, in the AI world that we're going into now, the machine learning world, one of the important things around basic income is that it gives people an ability to say no. And they can say no to an intrusive welfare state because they won't have to put up with it because they'll have some support as of right. But they'll also be in a position to, even through organisations as trade unions or professional associations, say no to employment environments that devalue their humanity, that monitor them, control them. And we have seen this in some Amazon warehouses, for example. Now, a basic income in that situation means that groups of workers have a better possibility of grouping together to say, no, this is not acceptable. So actually, you know, whether it's AI through state systems or through platforms and um, economic um, organisations, Basic income, as we make the transition, at least gives people a bit of agency and voice to resist some of the potentially very negative impacts of uh, a very um, uh, non-just application of new technologies. And by the way, I don't want your listeners to go away uh, with the sense that I'm anti-new technology. I'm, I'm actually very optimistic about technology in many in many ways. But as long as we can we can govern, adapt, and manage technology on our own collective terms, and not in the interests of the small elite, but in the interests of all. The picture Andrew Yang paints in his book, uh, "The War on Normal People." is a picture of this happening in a relatively quick time frame. And one of the major things that he talks about is the automation of vehicles. He thinks self-driving vehicles are kind of just around the corner and being a very common job. That's, I can't remember how many people, uh, but millions of people essentially out of work. And what do those people do with their lives? Um, so I think that's a, something that we're going to have to work out as a as a as a country, as a, as a world, relatively soon. Yeah, well, having wholeheartedly agreed with Andrew early on, I'm going to wholeheartedly disagree with him now because <laughs> I, I, I think it will take a lot longer than, than the immediate future. You've got to think about... One, one you're talking about, because of the, the volume of people that will very suddenly be put out of work, that's problematic in and of itself. There are licensing systems, there are road rules, there is insurance, there is law, there is political decision, and all these are, are back. So what, what you find out in every new technological wave, and we're in, we are entering a new technological wave, I don't, I don't recoil from that for a moment, um, but what you find is what the technologists imagine will be the impacts actually hit the buffers of human systems, laws, regulations, and so on very, very quickly. And that 
that slows it down. You know, electrification took 50, 60 years really to come to full um, fruition. The digital revolution, of course, was probably started in the 50s and, and we're still in the foothills of what a digital revolution means. You know, machine learning and AI, if you like, in many respects is the next manifestation of a digital revolution with new scientific understanding coming coming together. And the, the, the question is, of course, how quickly that exponential curve hit. Um, I'd be willing to bet that we're still predominantly driving our cars in 15, 20 years' time. Um, but if not, I'll make my apologies to, to Andrew Yang. <laughs> Great. All right, I know you're very busy and you need to, you've got places to be. So I will let you go off. And I just want to say thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. I think we covered a lot of ground. So if any of your listeners do have any um, questions, you can find my Twitter feed and you know engage me or abuse me as, as people do or don't on Twitter. <laughs> and you can find my email address and all the rest of it. Anywhere else that you want anybody to look, like the RSA website, if they want a bit more information on some of the issues we've talked about? Yeah, just just Google basic income and uh, my name or just basic income and the RSA um, and there's loads of material up there, lots of events that we've done, lots of different speakers, the reports are up there, blogs are up there um, and yeah, always willing to engage on this because I think it's one of the most important discussions of our time. Great, thanks very much. Thank you. Unfortunately, we ran out of time a bit there, but I am very thankful to Anthony for being kind enough to let us run over a little bit. If you do have any more questions, as I am sure you're bound to, get in touch with him on Twitter, at Anthony Painter. But don't give him abuse, like he said. You're better than that. If there's something that you disagree with, engage him, ask him that question. There's so much more dialogue needed on this subject, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you all have to say. I've put some links up in the bio for some of the things Anthony was talking about, So give them a click and have a read of those. Laura James, this music is beautiful, as always. This is the music from her track, Rooftops. Go check her out. If you think the music's nice, her voice is even better. Thank you very much for listening today. If you're enjoying these episodes, get over to iTunes, press that subscribe button. Go on. It's just there. Press the subscribe button. It's there. Subscribe.